0: Welcome to
1: The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas
2: Theological Seminary.
3: This is going to be a little different uh, uh, cultural engagement podcast. Mikel DeRosario, who works in the Hendricks Center with me, is going to do the interview. And I'm on the other side of the table with two other experts. So I'm handing it off to him. So Mikel, the floor is
1: yours. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Daryl. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, cultural engagement assistant at the Hendrix Center. And I want to introduce our three guests today. Uh, The first, the man who's normally driving this conversation Mm -hmm. is Dr. Daryl Bach, executive director of cultural engagement and senior research professor of New Testament at DTS. And I also want to welcome Terry Moore, who teaches uh, New Testament as an adjunct at the Houston campus, and Dr. David Lowry, who's joining us, also teaches New Testament here at the seminary. And our discussion today is going to be on experiencing the Christmas story. When we say experiencing the Christmas story, what we're talking about is, you know, before this discussion, we were talking about the different ways that we tend to see people talk about the Christmas story um, on, the, on the internet, on blogs, Christian blogs, even from the pulpit, where we either We either talk about how Jesus came to earth and we talk about the Christmas story in light of what we know, you know, the end of the story, or like we've read the first chapter of John, or we talk about um, apologetic kinds of things and, and showing the historicity of the gospel accounts. And Daryl, what do we miss by exclusively approaching the Christmas story just from these two angles?
3: Well, oftentimes we miss some of the themes in the Christmas narrative itself. And so our thought was to discuss some of the themes actually emerging from within the narrative of the Christmas story itself, and to kind of get, on the one hand, beyond uh, the baby Jesus coming to Earth and get beyond the apologetic concerns. So with that in mind, we've got Matthew and Luke. That's right.
1: We're going to take a look at Matthew. We're going to take a look. Actually, we'll start with Luke first. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take a look at this Christmas story, experiencing it through um, two women and two men, Zachariah and Joseph, the two guys, and then Elizabeth and Mary, the two women. So I want to start out with Luke. Luke is giving us the story mostly through Mary's eyes, and we see this theme of joy that's running through the story. But when we think about the Christmas story, we think about, well, it's the birth of Jesus, right? When we start, it's John is all over this thing. And so, Terry, why is John and why is John and Zachariah why is he even a part of this story?
2: Well, I think that um, there's probably two different things. First of all, you see a comparison between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, where John is better, Jesus is best. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And so you're already setting up that comparison between those two figures. Um, But you also see John um, kind of as as the last Old Testament prophet, so preparing the way for Mm -hmm. the one who's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jesus, and so I think it's very important to begin the story of Jesus with the birth of John.
1: Mm -hmm. And so John is is preparing the way his dad, initially very skeptical. He's like, Mm -hmm. I'm really old. My wife's really old, too. How is this going to happen? What are we supposed to take away from his initial response to the annunciation? David?
4: Well, I think the challenge for Zechariah was his prayer was answered, and he was very surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's not unusual in the early church. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. You recall Peter standing, knocking at the door, and uh, they didn't recognize him. So that's the challenge early on, that the grace of God comes to people who still struggle with issues of faith, Mm -hmm. and Zechariah is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. So there's an unusual annunciation
1: right at the beginning of this. There's all this unusual stuff going on, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned this John-Jesus parallel. Do you see a kind of Elizabeth-Mary parallel going on, too?
2: Um, I think you see a little bit of that. Um, If you look at Elizabeth's pregnancy, and and it's certainly miraculous because she was barren and she was very old. And then um, you have the even uh, bigger miracle of Mary's pregnancy um, as a virgin and and the Holy Spirit involved in both of those. So yes, I do think there's there's some parallels there between the two of them. Hmm.
1: And there's also the contrast of Luke says
3: Elizabeth was really old, and
1: then we know Mary right. was
3: Very
2: really, young.
1: really young. How yeah. young do you think uh, Mary must have been? Well,
3: if this is a standard situation in the first century, uh, Mary is probably in the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably around 13 or so. Uh, when I tell <laughs> when, I, when when I talk about this in Sunday school classes and mention this, uh, the jaws literally drop <laughs> in class. Um, to think about someone that young, processing this experience in the way this young girl has processed this experience and is able to deal with it is is pretty amazing
1: Hmm. and so when we put ourselves kind of in mary's shoes not knowing you know the end of the story not knowing in the beginning was the word you know and and that jesus and the whole incarnation thing is going on here what is mary thinking when she hears her baby's going to be called holy her baby's going to reign forever. He'll be called the Son of God. We want to jump to incarnation right away, typically. But what, what is Mary
4: thinking, David? Well, Mary's probably thinking in light of the promise of a coming Messiah in some respects. But um, Mary is such a great model of, of faith mm-hmm. in that uh, she hears what is said to her, and her response is, may it be to me according to your word. Mm-hmm. So she is a great model for all of us in terms of a right response to the Word of God. And remarkable in that respect, there is some comparison between Zechariah and Mary as well, where Zechariah is skeptical, and Mary is a person of faith. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does Mary's being a virgin, how does that, Terry, tie in with Elizabeth's pregnancy? She's, she's barren, but Mary's a virgin. There's, there's a contrast there as well.
2: Right, I think it goes back to what I was talking about, the... Um wonderful miracle with Elizabeth um, Mm -hmm. and then the even taking it one step further with Mary um, being a virgin and I think that's a great point you, you made about Mary is her question to the angel is but how
3: <laughs> <laughs> right yeah they've all taken um, biology 101 right,
5: right.
2: <laughs> i mean she, she knows that this is impossible um so uh, there's a little bit maybe a, a little bit of wavering but it's not a mm, this isn't possible it's wait how, how are you going to do this mm-hmm. she, she believes and, and then she says how um and I know in the back of her mind she is thinking of the ramifications. She's thinking of how people are going to respond when she says this. Mm -hmm. But she still, in light of that, says, here I am. There's a a
3: wonderful scene in a movie done about the birth um, years ago in which Mary and Joseph together are announcing to Mary's parents Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And the skepticism that the parents Mm -hmm. have about the way this birth, this impending birth, is being explained. Now, none of that, none of that, obviously, is in the Bible, but it's in the background, and, uh, and it, it's it's just interesting to watch someone reflect on what this actually required of her at her age to go forward in faith and, and trust this. And I and I love I love the contrast between Mary's response and what happens to Zechariah, because Zechariah, of course, asks question with skepticism and and he um, gets to experience what I call an extended quiet time Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know I mean think about it for a while you're not going to speak or hear until this is all taken place and that's exactly what happens to him and what he learns in that process is God is going to perform his word no matter how amazing Mm -hmm. that word actually is and that's actually one of the narrative points is is that God is actually in the business of, of, He's revealed what He's going to do, and as amazing as it sounds, it's going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no matter how unusual, no matter how impossible it seems, mm-hmm. God's going to get His will done mm-hmm. through through miraculous means. Um, and so as we're thinking about Mary and Elizabeth now, we're moving into this um, meeting that they have. What's unfolding in this meeting? As you know, John leaps in her womb, and then she blesses. Mary, what do we see unfolding here?
2: Well, I think the text shows us uh, Elizabeth filled with the spirit, Um, and obviously um, John recognizing what's happening when Mary comes to her. Um, and so you see Elizabeth blessing Mary and um, calling her immediately the mother mm-hmm. of my Lord. Um, and that seems to be Holy Spirit revelation um, on on her. And then you have Mary responding with her song. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, God is going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. Well, the angel tells her, um, your son will be, will be Messiah, your son will reign forever. And she immediately... Um, Sings this song and declares that to be a fact, basically, even though the baby is still in her wound, such her faith is so strong that she knows what is coming and and proclaims it as fact
1: mm-hmm. It really is a, an awesome example of faith for us mm-hmm. that we see Mary risks being marginalized, she risks um, you know, being thought of with with suspicion, mm-hmm. and yet she says, Let it be you know just like you said, let the lord 's will be done in my life so as we now think about John the Baptist's birth, um, I want to read this, um, this passage from Luke 1, because, you know, Zechariah can finally talk again. <laughs> he and Elizabeth call him John, and people are like, hey, that's not a normal thing to do because nobody's named John. Everybody hears about it, and they go, something unusual is going on here, right? And then he prophesies. And so I want to just read a portion of that prophecy. He says, um, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he has Come to help us, and has redeemed his people, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from long ago. Now, David, I'm going to pitch this one to you because there's David, David all over the place here. And <laughs> what does Zechariah get at least at this point? What's he get now that he's in a different place from from when he started?
4: Well, I think he's responding now to his reflection, maybe on what the Scripture has promised and. Uh, looking at the fulfillment of some of the promises which have been given and uh, the experience then of seeing God at work through him and through his family and the anticipation of what God is going to do for the people of Israel through a person like John the Baptist who comes and preaches to them.
3: Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. So God's keeping his promises. This is a running theme through this whole thing.
3: Yeah, there's an interesting, sometimes the English translations obscure what's going on here. There is the interesting idea of the visit. Uh, that's running through the language of this passage. There is, um, there is the visit uh, of God that redeems his people at the beginning of the passage, and the coming to help idea. And then there is the visit at the end of this hymn in which there's a morning dawn coming, that's a light coming out of the midst of darkness, which is interesting, actually uh, parallels also what Matthew ends up saying about the birth of Jesus. Um, said in very different ways. You know, the scripture in Luke is in the language of the characters. The Scripture in Matthew is in these notations, narrative notations, by the writer as certain events are happening. So they're both appealing to Scripture, but in slightly different ways. And but and, and both of them are woven with the idea of this is something God has planned to do. This is something He has spoken about and revealed to us, and now it is happening. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Well, and that's the source of Mary's faith, too, is what she knows about Scripture and what she knows about God from Scripture. Um, it's not just kind of a sudden revelation she has. It comes from what she's been taught and what she's read about what God is going to do at 13. Well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
5: So
1: there's a pattern here, right? God yeah. fulfills his promises all along, and, and it's just going to keep going no matter how how unusual things have to be end up being for him to accomplish his purposes well let's turn to Joseph now and his experience with the Christmas story we looked at Zachariah we looked at Elizabeth and Mary now through the eyes of Joseph uh, Luke says that Caesar Augustus ordered the census and that's why Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem and Joseph went there because he was from the house and the family of David now, what does it mean in terms of David, or in terms of Jesus' family roots, that again, David, we have this, this messianic thing all over the place here? So I'm going to pitch that to David again.
4: <laughs> this is a theme, too, in uh, Matthew's gospel. As he begins, he highlights the fact that he's, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And um, Joseph then is portrayed as a fellow who uh, is a righteous person. And he finds that Mary is pregnant. And so he does what he thinks a righteous person should do, and that is uh, follow what the scripture says with regard to separating himself from a woman he believes to be unfaithful, basically, in this betrothal period. But God, in his grace, again, sends an angel to Joseph. And Joseph uh, is a model, too, of obedience and faith, because he accepts what the angel says with regard to Mary and um, takes her as his wife. So uh, the human characters all struggle, in some sense, with believing that this is really how God is doing what he's doing, mm-hmm. and yet are shown to be submissive to his will and obedient to fulfill what they're called to do.
3: You know, you know, I think about this, uh, and I think about, if you're in the PR meeting in <laughs> which the marketing firm is designing, how should we introduce the one who's going to be the savior of the world into the world? You know, and what kind of campaign should we put around it? What we get in the Gospels is not exactly probably what a PR firm would design. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're, we're tucked away in a far corner of the Roman world, on the very edge of life. We're tucked away in in a situation in which the birth is very, very modest. It's not in a castle or in a fortress or something like that, and. And we see all uh, born to very uh, normal-looking people, if I can say it that way. I mean, they do have this regal lineage, but, there's, but they're very normal people. And, and so there's a commonness to all this mm-hmm. that's pretty, pretty amazing when you reflect on it. Mm-hmm. So if we think about him going back to this
1: ancestral home and you know, there's relatives, there's all kinds of people there, the place is probably packed out. Where do you think, Terry, where do you think Jesus was actually born in this, in this setup?
2: Well, I think we sometimes have this picture, and I have the nativity scene <laughs> that, uh, that my children play with, and it, you know, it's a nice, you know, barn. Um, and some people think of a cave, but we we also know that sometimes houses had like an upstairs where people um, lived, and maybe a downstairs kind of open area where the animals were, um, and that that's maybe a likely place um, where Jesus was born. Um, Maybe because there wasn't room upstairs and, and because, you know, it's busy. <clears throat> but also maybe a little bit of privacy when Mary realized what was happening. Um, but still, a place where animals <laughs> ate, um, slept, and, and did other things. <laughs> that made it not smell very well and, and not as sanitary as we would like. And, you know, a lot of my research has been on childbirth in the ancient world. And so we talk about Mary. <clears throat> Um, and the excitement of having a child, but it actually was also very terrifying, mm-hmm. um, especially as a 13-year-old. Um, the death rate for women in childbirth it was astronomical, um, and and many times, especially pagan women, um, would ask the gods for salvation um, through childbirth because it was it was terrifying. It was um, exciting, like it is today, but. A much more scary proposition than it is today I would think and then those circumstances probably heightened her fear mm-hmm. um, so um, at the beginning when Gabriel said the Lord is with you I'm sure she was probably repeating that in her mind as as she birthed her child in a place where animals lived
1: that's, that's a great great insight mm-hmm. so we have no space up in the in the Cataluma or in the, the upper room and so probably down with the animals is where they right. were again we have this this humility that's mm-hmm. going on humility and royalty kind of juxtaposed mm-hmm. together let's turn to uh, Matthew now because Matthew gives us the story through Joseph's eyes, and in this case, you know, we see why more gosp- one gospel, and then we have another gospel. Why it's better to have more than one gospel because you get different camera angles on the same thing. And here we have this theme of of tension more than more than joy um, mm-hmm. that's being pushed through in Matthew. And I just want to read um, a section from uh, the opening of of Matthew. This is where. The angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You know, the angel even says he'll save his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. And you know, what, we want to think about what is going on in, in Joseph's head when he hears this. So let me read this um, section. All this happened, this is Matthew 1.22. All this happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is explaining this, this Old Testament background now. Again, we right away want to go to incarnation, right? But what is what is the, the reader thinking? What would people in that day think?
3: Well, I mean, the evocation of Isaiah, obviously, is the evocation of the presence of a sign child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, it's designed to support the idea that a virgin birth shouldn't catch us entirely by surprise. Um, but here's what I think happens at Christmas time that's worth reflecting on. Because the virgin birth itself is so controversial to our age and time, we end up spending a lot of time defending the idea of a virgin birth, mm-hmm. and we miss the end of the passage. The end of the passage says that this child is named Emmanuel, God with us. Now the fun, the fun thing is is that Jesus actually isn't called Emmanuel anywhere else in the Gospels, okay? Mm-hmm. But the sign child is God with us. Mm-hmm. And so the end of the passages is important to what Matthew is doing and saying as the actual miraculous sign. In fact, what is the sign for? It's supposed to point to some kind of a message. Mm-hmm. And the message is, the PowerPoint, if you will, is, <laughs> okay, God is with us. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: So, how do how do we see Matthew linking this this prophecy then to Mary's situation because there's there's the Isaiah sign child, mm-hmm. then there's Jesus as the sign shot. How does Matthew link
4: those two things together, Terry? I
2: may let David answer. Okay, right David.
4: <laughs> well, Matthew, um, Terry's actually, she took a class with me on Matthew. She's an outstanding student. She knows Matthew, but anyway, <laughs> I'll answer the question. Uh, you know, Matthew uses a series of prophecies to show the way in which the events associated with Jesus' birth have worked out in accordance with the plan of God. And he ends his gospel with Jesus' word to his disciples that I am with you right to the end of the age. So the Emmanuel reference that begins is also affirmed in a somewhat different way at the end of the gospel. And Matthew also shows that the coming of Jesus into the world was uh, fraught with uh, danger, opposition. Uh, He illustrates how... The Magi, the Gentiles, are responsive to Jesus, mm-hmm. but the religious leaders and Herod, the king of Israel, mm-hmm. were opposed to him. So you have this theme of joy on the part of the Magi, but fear and animosity and opposition on the part of the people of Israel. And Matthew also includes this, uh, the slaughter of the innocents, the death of those who are in Bethlehem. And he sees it as, in some sense, a foreshadowing of the kind of opposition and misery and sorrow that will come to the people of Israel because they, too, for the most part, will end up rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Mm -hmm. So these twin themes of Mm -hmm. joy but also fear and sorrow run through Matthew's presentation. Mm -hmm. And his use of Scripture is a word of assurance to readers. These things happen in accordance with the plan and purpose of God. And even though they may look like happenstance, they are what God intends, and we can be confident of his purposes being achieved. Hmm.
1: This is really a very unusual story when you try to put yourself in the, the context of people who don't know the end of the story. Yeah.
3: I think it's an interesting thing to see how, um, how that tension works itself out, that Jesus walks into a world that produces a choice, and. Uh, and there are themes of joy that surround this child, but there are also themes of real tension that surround this child. And the Scripture doesn't walk away from either of those. No. It it has them uh, interwoven. And I, and I do think there's a beauty in having multiple Gospels telling the story from different angles and different ways. I mean, Mark doesn't even mess with the infancy story. Uh, he leaves it completely blank. And John goes to a completely different plane, you know, uh, from the first verse, you know, what's going on in terms of the fullness of the story. But what I love about Matthew and Luke is they show they show the humanness of what God is doing uh, for us. And, and that
4: happens, and it generates both joy and tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also prepares, I think, the reader for the fact that uh, Jesus is going to be opposed in his ministry, and uh, he is going to come to an end in accordance with what he told the disciples. He is going to be rejected. He is going to be killed. So what Herod tried to do at the beginning, ultimately the Gentile Pilate does at the end. But in both cases, it's in accord with the purpose and will of God. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, he quotes a text from Zechariah that the, the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered in accordance with the plan and purpose of God again. But it comes at the end of his ministry, not at the beginning of his life. Hmm.
2: Well, and I think also it's a first century reader reading even Luke, hmm. when you hear the angels announce um, good news, uh, son of God, and... Um, bringing peace, being the savior. Those are also things that were said about Caesar. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's almost like in Luke, there's kind of music in the background, kind of foreboding you. So whereas Matthew is is more, um, I guess, explicit about kind of the dangers and the tensions for the child. um, If you're listening in Luke, you can hear that. Um, You hear Mary proclaiming, he's the king, which means Herod is not and Caesar is not. and and so there's that foreboding in Luke also mm-hmm. I think of there's there's going to be conflict and then Simeon mm-hmm. who who at the end when he sees Jesus in the temple um, is excited to see him but also then tells Mary but he's going to be opposed and so you have that in, in both of these gospels. Yeah, you do in have ways. the tension
3: in both of the gospels, and the interesting thing about that the tension and the and the pressure and the foreboding that you get about who Jesus is is. Um, you have some surprising elements. I mean, you know, we call Matthew the Jewish Gospel, and yet it's the Magi who are really sensitive to what's going on at the birth. Uh, these are Gentiles. These are Gentile astrologers, for lack of a better description. They're stargazers, and so um, you know, apparently the horoscope cage was doing better than the than the reading of the scripture. <laughs> uh, so there are surprises in the midst of the story that are that are amazing, and yet. The message is coming across loud and clear through the use of the scripture, through the way in which that scripture is woven through the rest of the story is God is going to perform his word. And it is amazing that we get to be a part of this drama, Mm -hmm. that we're in the story. Mm -hmm. So
1: there's this joy and tension that's juxtaposed. There's humility and royalty that's juxtaposed. There is... um, The other one. (laughs) The The theme of God's faithfulness. Yeah, the theme of God's faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then the fact that we have Jewish um, people or people living in in the Jewish area who are opposed to Jesus, when we have the Gentiles who are actually responding, kind of showing us, foreshadowing that this birth is not just for Israel. It's Mm -hmm. for the nations, too, somehow. Mm -hmm. And we do have some microphones out in the audience. So if you would make your way to a microphone, if you have a question, um, go ahead and do that right now. Um, so that you can ask a question of one of our guests. If we were to take a look at the, the Christmas story in, in both of these things and put them together and kind of compare and contrast them, what's one closing Christmas message that you think some, somebody could integrate into uh, a Christmas message on, on the birth narratives?
3: Well, I think the thing that strikes me about it is I, I really love... There are two scenes that I love out of Luke. One is when Mary and Elizabeth get together. And um, everything's all jumbled up, because Elizabeth is the older. Mm. Mary's the younger. Mm. And yet the respect that is communicated is is communicated from the older to the younger because of the child that Mary bears. Mm. So there's a reversal that's going on there. And there's such a sense of humility about being a part of this story, about being included in the drama, that I think is, is tremendous. And then the other one that I really have fun with, and I always want to play the music to Fiddler on the Roof in the background <laughs> when, in this scene, is the scene where they name Jesus in Luke. You know, and they use a name that doesn't have any family precedent or whatever. So, all the people in the audience who have tradition going in the background go, Wait, you can't name this child this name. There's no precedent for this. And yet, what they've both learned in the quiet time that Zechariah had is, We're going to obey the Lord. The Lord gave us this name to name this child, and we're going to do it because the theme running through the events that Luke is presenting is God will perform his word, and his word is worth responding to Mm. and embracing. So we have the humility on the one hand of what it is that we're experiencing, that we get to be a part of the drama. That's actually part of the joy of Christmas is that we're a part of the drama. Mm -hmm. Every one of us in this room is a part of the drama. And the other is... Uh, the other is the recognition that God will, will do what He, what He says.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Question.
5: Okay, take Go it. Ahead. Uh, okay, so this is uh, regarding way far forward uh, <coughs> uh, during Jesus' ministry when um, his mother and his bro- and his brothers were coming to him, uh, and you know it's the part where uh, he said, "Who is my mother? Who is my brother?" Uh, during that time, uh, what would be the reason why they would be going to him? Because despite the f- the knowledge that the angel came to Mary saying that Jesus will be the savior, uh, were at that time did she think of a physical salvation, as in like you know like all the other messiahs that came before and freed uh, is the Israelites from each oppressor from their own respective time. Were they also expecting Jesus to be the person to rise up against the Romans and free Israelites, or did she actually understood that it was a spiritual salvation at that time? Who wants to take that?
2: I, I think Mary was like other Israelites, and she had expectations of the Messiah. She expected him to overthrow Gentile rulers, and Jesus was confronting Jewish leaders. Um, she expected him to drive out sinners from the land, and Jesus was having dinner with them. Um, and I, mean, I can imagine, as a mother, she may have been like, I don't think he understood what I told him the angels said. <laughs> <laughs> I, the angel told me this, and you're acting this way. So I think there probably was a, an idea in her head that he was not meeting the expectations that she had, even with the revelation she had. And so and, and the text doesn't really tell us how she responded to that, but I think because she's with Jesus then at the crucifixion, I think she probably got the message of what he was saying, of, yes, Mother, I, I, I do know what you said about me being Messiah. This is what that means. Th-
3: this actually, the question actually illustrates something that I think is important to get about the Gospels, and that is that the synoptic Gospels, at least, mm-hmm. tell the story of Jesus from the earth up. And I remember a devotional one Christmas in our church. A woman got up in, in church, and she said, I wonder what it was like to be Mary and know that you were raising a perfect child, and I'm sitting there in the audience going, I'm not sure Mary had that thought. You know, the the, Mary's expectation is this was going to be the Messiah. I don't think she's uh, approaching the second person, the ontological Trinity level of understanding yet, and so, and, and so Jesus was doing things that were that were that were shocking, that were almost beyond messiahship in some ways. And that scene that you've talked about it, is showing some nervousness on her part about what he is doing and how he's going about it I think she wants to have like mother's might with a child a little private strategy Mm -hmm. meeting about is this the best way to go about this (laughs) and uh and and Jesus turns around and makes the point those who do the will of my God's going to do his word Jesus Mm -hmm. knows what that word is all about and and God's going to do his thing and he's going to do his thing through me that's Mm -hmm. That's, I think, very much what's going on in that passage.
4: Yeah, it's a theme, I think, that runs through human encounter with Jesus in the course of his ministry, a considerable amount of misunderstanding Mm -hmm. on the part not only of his disciples, but also of his immediate family, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't fit the expectation in their mind as to what the Messiah should be. He has to redefine it for them, and his redefinition is not one they're happy with. So that's the challenge, I think.
3: And sometimes the 2,000 years of pretty good PR that have come out of the church <laughs> has colored the original circumstances in which we find ourselves and, and in which these people found themselves. And we sometimes miss the drama. I actually think it's important for the church to learn how to tell, to retell the story of Jesus from the earth up. Because my contention is that's how we all come to Jesus. None of us comes to Jesus with an inherent understanding when we were first born that Jesus is the second person in the ontological trinity. Okay? If you came to Jesus that way, I'd like to meet you after the hour. Okay? Um, Most of us come to Jesus because someone sat down or we were exposed to the word or whatever way and, and explained to us how absolutely unique this one baby that's entered the world is from every other baby who's ever entered the world. And... And it's got to dawn on people. The Spirit has to do a work for that to happen. And sometimes I think we miss uh, that tension, that narrative literary tension that's in the story. And I think it would help church communicate with people who don't have a church background to recapture how the scriptures actually do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Sure. Uh, so, sort of a historical background question, but, you know, in, in popular depictions, Joseph and Mary are always by themselves, wandering through the desert to get to Bethlehem. But from a background, cultural background perspective, is that likely, or would they have probably had family or a whole entourage with them, do you think? It's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, uh, because usually, if, if, you're making, if you're making a move because you're being asked to make a move for uh, something like a census, which, of course, is the background that w- that brings Joseph and Mary from the north to the south. Um, the idea that you would travel just the two alone might or might not be the case. In fact, I think I saw uh, a recent movie in which that was not the assumption. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, um, completely un- related to the question, completely unrelated to our topic, but worth thinking about is when you do a depiction of this stuff which means when, even when you get up in the pulpit to talk about it, you're filling in a lot of gaps mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that you assume that uh, that aren't in the text uh and uh, I, always, I always marvel at movie writers, script writers, because they're filling in all those blanks for you. Uh, and so sometimes the most basic questions, there were two floors in the house, you know, or how did they get from the north to the south? What did that trip actually involve? We don't even think about those things. And yet they're, they're very much a part of the story. And more interestingly, how we conceive of that may actually impact the way we tell the actual story of the things that are in the Bible. So it actually is an important thing to think through. So that was a fancy way of saying, I don't know the answer to your question, Mm -hmm. Okay, but it sure is fun to think about it.
4: (laughs) Yeah, whoever was traveling with him uh, was also uh, a Davidite, a Mm -hmm. member of the family of David, because Mm -hmm. they were going to Bethlehem for that purpose. So it may have been a relatively small company, actually, Mm -hmm. of people who qualified in that regard.
3: This may sound like a silly question, but I'm not very familiar with uh, ancient Jewish birthday parties. But uh, (laughs) would Jesus and his disciples, you know, I'd like to think of them gathering together and him sharing his birth story with them. Um, So, was it common for them to celebrate birthdays and what they may have looked like?
4: Gentiles celebrated birthdays. Jews, as far as we know, did not. Mm. Not much recognition on the part of Jews of birthdays. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't recount his experiences, mm. uh, or at least what he was told for the disciples. But um, Jews as a, The exception would be Herod Antipas, who had a, a very infamous birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was more Greco-Roman than Jewish. And so... Um, it's unlikely Jesus blew out too many candles in the course of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no precedent for gay.
3: That actually raises another question, and that is why December 25th? OK? You ever thought about that question? Um, it actually comes from a much later period. It's designed to replace uh, pagan Celebration in parts, we actually don't know what time of year Jesus was likely to have been born in. Another interesting question is, why is it that Jesus was born in 4 BC? How can the Christ be born before the Christ? <laughs> okay Okay, that one gives me my hairline. All right? <laughs> uh, you know I mean, I mean, how does that work? And there, there are calendrical issues in how we determine the calendar. and the first time they did it, uh, like much math done by theologians, okay? <laughs> they got it wrong, <laughs> okay? And so and so they went back and adjusted for leap years and other things in the different kind of calendar that it was, and they recognized, oh, there's probably a four to six year uh, mistake here. So we have Jesus born before the Christ on a day that we celebrate for other reasons, and that's why Christmas falls at the time of year that it does. So this is... Just, random trivia facts about Christmas.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to speak to the humanness of Jesus and why we distance ourselves from, um, speaking of that, even like uh, from the pulpit, orators, mothers, fathers who are around the uh, fireplace trying to tell the story of Jesus, why we distance ourselves from the humanness of it, from the lineage of uh, Christ coming from actual people mm-hmm. instead of him just kind of plopping down on Earth like kind of like the stories that we read about or the, the depictions of who he is. And um, secondly, I wanted to speak to um, Jesus being a, a person of color mm-hmm. and why we distance ourselves from that as well. And like, where did that come from? Like one of your uh, parishioners saying, uh, "I wonder what it feels like to have raised." A son who was perfect mm-hmm. um, like how do we uh, continue to dispel those things um, about the humanness of Jesus I think those are excellent points to make um, um, a, a lot of reasons why that we kind of don't want to talk about as humanists is it it's hard. It's easier to think of him as a heavenly being, and there's a lot of tradition and a lot of heresies that you know ignored that part of him. Um, and I think a lot of times we confuse perfect with sinless. Um, I think he, he probably had to learn his arithmetic. Um, it's not a sin to have to have to learn some things. Um, and so, I, I, I honestly, I don't know the answer to the question why, but I think we have here a birth story. I mean, that's very physical, um, and it, as as women and men know who have been around that experience, I mean, that's that's physical, that's human, um, and that's the experience that that he came into the world uh, with, um, and. Not seeing him as as a brown man, I mean he was he was a man of color. Um, again, that's tradition and people painting pictures of of Lily white skin on Mary and on Jesus. Um, and not recognizing the historical, like this real context. I mean, if you look through these stories, there's political references. Who was in charge at the time and, and what was going on in the world? Um, and we lose that context when we do, I mean, like you started, when we kind of make it this you know, beautiful, smooth story instead of recognizing the, the tension, the fear, um, the earthiness um, of what was happening in the incarnation.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen a 13-year-old Mary painting, you know? (laughs) A little 13-year-old girl with with a baby. I just haven't seen that.
4: Well, most people don't preach the genealogies either, but (laughs) (laughs) that would be a good place to start Mm -hmm. to say both Matthew and Luke show uh, Jesus' descent from a variety of persons. They're slightly different in both accounts. Matthew includes a few women, which is unusual in a genealogy, Mm -hmm. and some of them are of questionable moral character. Uh, a good reminder, again, of God's grace in um, bringing together a variety of people through whom, ultimately, the Messiah comes. Mm-hmm.
2: And I know we're running out of time, but one of my favorite things to do with the Christmas story is talk about what I call like the pyramid of, of those in power in the world of Jesus, where you have Herod and Rome as his backer at the top. And then you have a retainer class of the chief priests and, and people who were supporting Herod and wanted to keep him in charge. And then you have all these lower rungs, the peasants, um, the kind of um, the, the ones who did offensive work, like shepherds, they were unclean. And then you see the announcement of the Messiah and where he's coming in, he's coming in on the lower rungs. Mm-hmm. Um, And like we've talked about, the higher rungs of that power pyramid are not even, not only are they not recognizing who he is, they are opposed to who he is. They are trying to kill him from the very beginning. Um, And so that world um, that then Jesus comes into with power and authority and uses his power and authority to um, heal those at the bottom rung and criticize those at the top rung. I mean, that's kind of the upside-down kingdom, I think, that Jesus is bringing. And you see it from the beginning. Mm-hmm.
1: So. so God is keeping his promises. Mm-hmm. Jesus has entered this world of tension mm-hmm. and joy. And even today, we, all, we always celebrate Christmas in tension mm-hmm. and joy. Mm-hmm. I just want to thank you so much for coming to our Cultural Engagement Chapel. Darrell, I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer.
3: OK. Father, we do thank you for this season. <laughs> We thank you for what it represents. You're taking your creation, which you shaped, and reshaping it yet again through a Savior. We are so privileged to be beneficiaries of that act many centuries ago. May we never take it for granted. May we rejoice in what it represents. May we never forget that it's designed to address a world that is full of tension but a world also that you're setting aright because of the child who came. So we lift up our voices in praise and say, Thank you, Lord, for being a wonderful and gracious God who loved us enough to give of yourself so that we may experience you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.